Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now. Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's an award-winning author or editor of 25 books and an award-winning professor. Ord directs the Northwind Theological Seminary Doctoral Program in Open and Relational Theology. He also directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Ord is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, issues in science and religion, and freedom for transformation. He has been president of several scholarly societies and lectures at institutions, events, and churches around the globe. He blogs frequently at his website, thomasjord.com, which we will link to in the show notes for this episode. It's an absolute honor to welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Thomas J. Ord. Hey, it's good to be chatting with you again, Jason. I'm really grateful for your time today, and I'm grateful for this God Can't Q&A book that you've released, and I'm excited to talk about it. First of all, how are you? How has this tumultuous COVID-19 pandemic season been for you thus far? Uh, you know, it's been kind of weird. Uh, life seems a little off kilter. I guess I'm doing as well as I can be doing in a pandemic, but, um, you know, trying to help people where I can and uh, trying to avoid the illness myself. Does embracing the uncontrolling love of God make a a pandemic harder or better, or does it just not affect how you deal with that in any way? Oh, it makes a big difference for me because I don't have to believe that the pandemic was sent by God for some, you know, reason of judgment or something like that. I don't have to believe that God is abandoning us, is sitting off in some cloud in the galaxy looking down and saying, boy, it sucks to be on earth right now with that pandemic. I also don't have to even believe that God is allowing this for some greater purpose or, you know, to teach us a lesson, to build our character, to, to you know, keep us, I don't know, improve us in some way. Uh, I can believe that God is working against the virus, calling me and you and the best scientists in the world to work against it, but it's not a part of some plan that God has. 
Your book, God Can't, was a groundbreaking theological work that's having ripple effects everywhere I look. Um, uh, The pastor of our local church, with no input from me, was part of a local group of pastors that actually studied your book and went through it together here in the panhandle of Florida. And I was so excited to hear that um, she and and her fellow pastors were studying that book. Uh, I'm sure that when a book catches on as much as yours did, there's going to be some pushback and a lot of questions. And that's why I'm so grateful for this Q&A book. Can you tell me what led you to write the Q&A follow-up to God Can't? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of the big ones is simply that people were asking me the good questions that emerge when people read uh, the kind of proposal that I have, that God loves everyone and everything, but can't control anyone or anything. And that's just, it's just natural for people to wonder, okay, well, what are the implications of that beyond, you know, the questions of evil, which the God Can't book primarily addresses? Um, and so that was part of my impetus in writing this book is to try to to give explanations. Um, another reason, I guess it's kind of parallel with that, but um, I realized that a lot of other questions people have, really difficult questions, hard questions. In fact, in some cases, questions that have led people away from believing there is a God at all can also be answered by this God-can't proposal. I mean, the number one reason why atheists say they don't believe in God is the problem of evil. But a lot of other people ask questions about prayer, about the afterlife, about miracles, about how God acts, all these kinds of things. And I realize that the God-can't perspective actually overcomes lots of uh, obstacles that stand in the way Uh, for people on those issues. Can we dive into a few questions in the book? Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. I I think one huge question that arises out of embracing an uncontrolling view of God, and and we touched on this in our last conversation, but I'd like to more fully develop it. Why bother praying at all if God isn't going to unilaterally change things? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's probably the most common question I get when I speak at uh, universities, churches, conferences, etc., Um, And of course, what that prayer is really asking about is what many Christians call petitionary prayer. I mean, I think, you know, there's lots of forms of prayer. We can pray prayers of confession, thanksgiving, worship, whatever. But uh, I think what people are asking is, you know, can God do anything (laughs) if I ask God to help me out or to solve some problem? um, Is my prayer or does my prayer make any kind of difference to God? And uh, I'm happy to say that in the uncontrolling love or God can't perspective, yes, prayer makes a real difference to God, to others, and to ourselves. It doesn't make it the case that God can somehow control us or others, but um, it makes a real difference. And I'd be happy to go into some detail on that if you'd like. Please do. So um, I think I could give a long answer, but I think I'll start with uh, this, sort of get to the heart of the issue. The God can't perspective believes something that most Christians I know believe, but the majority of famous Christian theologians in history have not believed. And it's this idea. God is truly affected by what happens in the world. God is 
relational, or the classic language was God is passable rather than impassable. If you look at the writings of famous uh, theologians like Thomas Aquinas, St. Anselm, Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, lots of people, you'll find them over and over saying, nope, God can't be affected by anything we do, which then implies our petitionary prayers have no effect, make no difference, do not influence God. I begin by rejecting that view. Uh, I go with what I think is the broad biblical witness, which over and over suggests that God is affected by what we do, including being affected by our prayer requests. The second important idea is that we live in an interrelated universe, a relational world. My actions not only affect myself, but those around me, in my environment, my society. Uh, In an interrelated or interconnected universe, anything we do, including our prayers, has an effect upon others. So when you combine the idea that our prayer affects God and affects the world in which we live, including our own bodies and our friends and neighbors and enemies, etc., then it means that our prayers in one moment can actually open up new possibilities, new avenues for action, new ways for God to act in the next moment in response to our prayers and the world at large. So if God doesn't control us, what does God do? What is it that God exists to do if it's not to change our reality? Yeah, there's a lot of words I use to talk about God's doing things in relation to us in the world. I can use the word influence, for instance, persuade, call, woo, command, redeem, sanctify. I can use all kinds of language to talk about what God is up to. In the book, I spend a lot of time using some philosophical language, and I think maybe I'll, I'll uh, use that here just because I suspect that the words I just used are probably, you know, probably make sense to most people when they hear me talk about them, but they still have, they'll still have questions. Philosophers sometimes distinguish between something being a sufficient cause and something being a necessary cause. A sufficient cause is something that it alone brings about some outcome. In the book, I use the phrase single-handedly. I say God can't single-handedly prevent evil, or God can't single-handedly produce results in the world. God needs cooperation or needs some contribution from creation. So um, I reject the idea that our prayers can make God a sufficient cause, that they can somehow turbocharge God to, you know, totally control some situation to bring about some event. However, I think God is a necessary cause in everything that occurs in the entire universe. Nothing could exist if God didn't act and create in a creative causal kind of way. And that means that no matter what we're looking at, we can say God was a cause to bring that about. Now, that doesn't mean that just because God was one of the causes, it uh, that whatever happened is God's will or what God wanted to have happen. 
I mean, we all know that in our daily lives, sometimes we do things with good intentions, hoping for good results, but others don't cooperate or some accident happens. And I think the same is true with God, except in God's case, I think God always, and let me stress always, acts in a loving way. And God's causal activity, influencing, calling, persuading, etc., is always for the good. But I think we, most Christians are going to agree that God doesn't always get God's way. There's sin in the world. There's evil. And God didn't want that. So the gist of it is when you ask me, what can God do? God is a cause in every last thing that exists in the entire universe. We live and move and have our being in God. But God is never a controlling cause, a sufficient cause. God never single-handedly brings about results. You know, there's the passage of scripture that says that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How do you read that passage in light of the uncontrolling love of God? I read it as saying, telling us something really profoundly true. Um, interestingly enough, that particular passage has a variety of translations. The Greek language uh, allows for a variety of renditions. And if you look, read some interpretations in the Bible, it sounds an awful lot like God in some mysterious way is manipulating everything as if God is controlling it all. But I like the revised standard version of uh, translation of that particular passage. It says that God is working in the midst of all things, which sounds like God isn't the only one, but God is in the midst of all things. And then it says, working with those who love him. In other words, it's explicitly identifying that there are other agents and causes, that God is calling and wooing to work toward the good in whatever situation. One of the, uh, I don't know, one of the lingering effects of my deconstruction, reconstruction journey has, has just been, I, I find myself still captivated by Jesus. Uh, I think maybe the cross wasn't what I always thought it was when I was, you know, really thinking that God was just absolutely orchestrating every detail of every life. But in light of your understanding, this God can't mindset, where does Jesus fit into the uncontrolling love of God? Well, I share with you that attraction to Jesus. I mean, I consider myself someone who tries to follow Jesus Christ, tries to live a life of love uh, like Jesus did. And so for me, Jesus is at the center of how I think about the way I want to live my life and who God is. And I think that Jesus actually reveals in his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection, actually reveals that God is a God of love, and not only a God of love, but uncontrolling love. I spend some time in this new book actually laying out, looking at some of the passages and ideas that people have typically translated or interpreted as instances of God obviously stepping in to control some situation, whether it be it, you know, the uh, Holy Spirit inception of Jesus, or what most people call the virgin birth, to Jesus' direct uh, resurrection, to miracles. And I think that the scriptures do not say God controlled, and Jesus reveals God as uncontrolling love, even in the midst of the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. 
if love is the heart of it all, if God is love and love is kind of the, the source of life, why does evil even exist? <laughs> Great question. Sometimes what people will, will read God can't, actually, it's, it's rarely that they've read it. It's usually they look at the title <laughs> and they say, <laughs> God can't. Well, that's right. obviously not correct. Uh, <laughs> Or they'll hear me say or someone else say that this book actually solves the problem of evil. And they'll say, oh, you are so cocky. How can you run around saying you actually solve this problem? And, you know, sometimes they're, they're just not thinking very well. But other times they have a really good point. And, and the, their question is not so much, why doesn't God prevent evil, which is the kind of the main question a lot of people ask in terms of evil. But their question is, why is there even evil in the first place? If God is a loving God and God created the entire universe, then why would a loving God put in a system in which evil was even possible? And uh, this is an excellent question that I think few people have wrestled with very deeply. And one of the biggest obstacles to providing a good answer to that question is an idea that has been accepted widely in the Christian tradition, but is not, let me repeat, not explicitly endorsed in the Bible. And that's the idea that God initially created our universe out of absolutely nothing, what in Latin is called creatio ex nihilo. The vast majority of theologians in the past and today affirm that view but I reject it. I reject it not only in the name of Scripture, but I reject it in the name of the problem of evil and the question of where did evil come from. Because if we reject that view and say that God everlastingly is been, uh, creates in one moment out of that which God previously created, then we've got a way for explaining why evil is even possible. That is, God didn't set up a whole system and single-handedly decide to put the possibilities of evil in that system, but the system itself is something God has always been creating. And because that system has free will, has agency, has spontaneity, has randomness, there's always going to be some possibility for evil in that system, despite the fact that a loving God creates. Yeah, I think that's so much of a, a healthier way to look at it. I, I think the idea that I grew up with was basically divine entrapment. You know, God God puts this uh, forbidden fruit in the garden and says, don't eat it, knowing that there's some kind of rebellion within us that's going to make us do it. You know, I, I like your perspective so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, it makes it even worse if you think God foreknows the whole future, because then, you know, it's it, God not only puts that forbidden fruit in the garden, God knows with absolute certainty Adam and Eve are going to eat of that fruit. And it's, it, it creates all kinds of difficulties in, conceptually if you think God is a, a loving God. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that's hardest for folks to embrace about a God can't or an uncontrolling love of God mindset is, is what do you do with somebody like Hitler? You know, when God, you know, we want God to be someone we can turn to when the worst kind of evil is being made manifest, when there's genocide in Rwanda, when there, you know, we want some divine being 
to deal with the things that we think are bigger than humanity can overcome alone. What do you say to somebody who says, I, I really want God to just control somebody like Hitler and you know, do away with that threat of evil? It's a really good question. And, I, and when people ask it, I think they have a, a number of intuitions and motives in asking it. Um, there's some people who, who rightly want to see justice in the world. They, justice, not only in the sense of fairness and equity, but also that uh, those who do wrong uh, somehow reap negative consequences. And um, my perspective says that God hates evil, that God hates the evil that, in this case, Adolf Hitler uh, um, caused in the world. So I'm not saying that God is like, you know, lollygagging around saying, hey, everything is just fine, uh, you know, murdering six and a half million Jews, three and a half million Poles, a half million gypsies and causing lots of other deaths. Hey, that's just all rosy and good in my, from my perspective. No, I think God's pissed and pissed is not really strong enough to talk about how angry God is with evil in general. And again, talking about Hitler in particular. I also think, however, that there are natural negative consequences that come from sin. We sometimes experience those natural negative consequences when we ourselves do things that hurt ourselves. But we also sometimes experience them when other people do it to us, and it's not fair. In my view, God hates what Adolf Hitler did, but God loves Adolf Hitler. And by love here, I don't mean God really likes the way Adolf Hitler acts. I mean God wants Adolf Hitler's well-being and all our well-beings, not only humans, but non-humans as well. God loves the world literally, every last thing. And by that, I mean God wants the well-being of every last thing. But we all, Adolf Hitler included, sometimes choose to do other than what God wants, and there are natural negative consequences when we say no to love in any particular moment. This, of course, brings up questions of the afterlife. Does God send someone like Adolf Hitler to hell? Does God send him to heaven no matter what he did? And I address that in the book by talking about what I call a relentless love perspective, which says that God never gives up inviting people to a life of love in trying to transform us, not just you and me, but even Adolf Hitler in the afterlife. I love that view. It's it's so refreshing. I, I don't know. There's just something about believing that God's love never quits. And obviously we want that for ourselves, right? We want that for our kids. We want that for the people we love. It's harder to want that for tyrants and despots and serial killers. But if we want it for ourselves, we have to love it for everyone or have to want that for everyone, right? Yep, I think that's right. You know, I I used to talk about this perspective oh, 10 years ago or so when I was still kind of working out the details of it. And when I say this perspective, I mean an, an afterlife, a relentless love, what I call the relentless love view of the afterlife. And um, I, I remember I had one particular dialogue partner whom I, I won't mention his, his name, but um, he kept saying, yeah, but why? how confident are you that even in the afterlife, some of these bad people, again, we're, we're using Adolf Hitler again, uh, some of these bad people 
will actually realize their, you know, what they've done is wrong and be transformed and say yes to God. I mean, um, you know, what kind of hope is that? There's no guarantee if God doesn't control them. And uh, that was a, a, a difficult question for me for quite a few years, because in my view, God never decides to control others. Um, and so therefore, I can't have the kind of guaranteed universal salvation that some people really, well, I mean, I want it too, but some people uh, want to uh, say is going to happen, uh, like someone like David Bentley Hart, for instance, would be a good example. Uh, but what really helped me, and um, I'll try to keep this short, uh, <laughs> what really helped me was reading a passage from one of my favorite theologians, John Wesley. John Wesley says something like, it's as easy for God to transform the whole world as it is one single person. And as I thought about that, I realized that, you know, I believe God is transforming my life. And am I trying to run around saying, you know, that I'm somehow better than everybody else, <laughs> uh, that I'm, you know, inherently better than Adolf Hitler? Um, I think I've made better choices than Adolf Hitler, but in terms of my intrinsic value, he's just as valuable as I am. And if God can provide salvation and woo, call, persuade me to accept love, I don't have any problems believing God can persuade Adolf Hitler to do the same. Amen. Uh, were there any questions? I, I know the book has been out a couple of weeks now, right? It's still doing really well. I saw on Amazon today, it's still number one in its category. Um, were there any questions that after the book went to print, you wished you would have included that didn't make the book? Oh, there are a lot of questions that didn't make the book. The, that's for sure. Obviously, I picked the ones I thought were either the most important or the most asked. This would have this would have made a nice little chapter. Um, and maybe I'll, in a second edition, I might put it in. I would have liked to write a chapter on science and religion generally, because I think this God perspective can really help people understand how to make their way through the science and religion questions, not only about evolution and about cosmology, but about neuroscience and social sciences, et cetera, to provide a kind of a framework that insists that God is active in all situations and that a fully, um, a, a fully robust response to any scientific phenomena has to include divine action, but also insists that any explanation has to uh, refer to creaturely action. So kind of avoiding the idea that science can give us all the truth or that theology can give us all the truth. Very interesting. Um, anytime I have some paradigm shifting idea, which doesn't happen often for me, I'm sure it happens much more often for you. Uh, one question that generally prevents me from ever uttering the idea to a single soul is what if I'm wrong? What if I'm misleading people? Uh, one of our listeners, Mike Coolen, he was wondering if that's a question that you ever struggle with. Tons. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, I think of it in terms of uh, certainty and doubt. Can I be certain that I know the right thing? And I definitely do not want to claim that I'm certain that the ideas in this book are true. I mean, I believe in God, a God of love. I'm not even certain God exists. I think it's plausible. I think my faith in God is reasonable. There's certain kinds of evidences, but I'm not 100% certain. 
And in fact, there was a time in my life when I was an atheist. Um, so I don't want to go around uh, acting as if I know I have the truth and this is obviously the right way. If everyone would just think correctly, they would see that this is absolutely true. I don't believe that at all. However, I'm not just like throwing spaghetti against the wall, making stuff up, you know, left and right as if I haven't really thought it through. These are ideas I think make a lot of sense biblically, experientially, scientifically in many ways. Um, so I don't know these things are true, but I'm also just not making it up left and right. Listener Derek Myers asks, can you differentiate between open theism and process theology for us? Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, process theology has many different forms. And so, um, you know, one of my favorite examples in trying to decide what process theology is, is to note that uh, two of my um, teachers, John Cobb and David Griffin, some of the most famous process theologians, uh, David Griffin has a book in which he lists, I think, 12 essential ideas in process theology. And John Cobb thinks there are zero <laughs> essential ideas in process theology. So, you know, wow. defining what process theology is, is pretty tough, even amongst those who are most self-identified as such. And openness, uh, openness folks have tried harder to identify the essentials, but even there, there's quite a bit of diversity. So what I'm going to say is pretty general, okay? Um, open and process theology share the notion that God is experiencing time moment by moment like we do. And that means the future is open. That means God can know all the possibilities for the future, but can't know with absolute certainty what exactly will happen in the future. They also strongly believe that God is relational, that God is affected by what happens in the world, that love is at the center of who God is. There's all kinds of similarities. But probably the number one um, issue of tension and debate has to do with understanding God's power. The process tradition, generally speaking, has been much more willing to say we should rethink God's power in such a way that God can't ever control anyone or anything. Whereas the openness side has been a little reluctant to say that. Many of them would want to say God allows things to happen. Many would want to say, well, maybe at the end of history, at the eschaton, God will control things at a final judgment. Most of them want to say that at the beginning of our world, God created out of nothing. All those kinds of differences come down essentially, I think, to trying to figure out what God's power is like. And most openness people want to differentiate their view from most process people. I was really excited to hear about the launch of the Center for Open and Relational Theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. How did that come about? And who do you hope participates in that program? Oh, I'm excited about it too. And it's a fairly new program, in part because Northwind uh, Theological Seminary is a startup. It's just newly formed. I approach them actually with the idea of having a doctoral program because I believe that that was something that was missing. There were a lot of people who uh, wanted to explore these ideas in greater depth, wanted to have a doctoral degree, and um, also didn't necessarily want to get up and move to another part of a country to uh, start that. So 
I came to Northwind knowing that they were a fully online seminary and said, um, what do you think about the idea of offering a doctoral degree? I would uh, direct that, mentor students one-on-one. It would be fully online. And and of course, one of the big upsides, as many of you of our, I'm sure the uh, listeners know, is that when you offer an online degree today, um, you can do it oftentimes much more inexpensively. And especially in, in terms of Northwind, Northwind doesn't have an actual physical campus. So uh, we don't have to pay all kinds of overhead costs to maintain buildings and things. So um, this particular degree allows people to get a doctoral degree by exploring the most important questions and issues uh, that we ask from an open and relational uh, theological perspective, and yet at a price that's uh, much less than most doctoral degrees. What do you hope the students will take away from that program once they've completed it? Well, you know, the program sort of is shaped uh, to begin by introducing students to the the wider literature and ideas of open and relational thought, and then to move toward the specific questions or issues that they want to explore. So I guess I want uh, students to have a broader understanding of all the powerful and I think uh, very positive implications of open and relational thinking generally, but then to really hone in on one specific or maybe two specific issues in light of open and relational thought. So like, for instance, one of the students, uh, in fact, he was talking to him last night, he wants to explore what discipleship, Christian discipleship should look like from an open and relational perspective. Another person has a political sort of bent and wonders like, uh, if you have an open and relational theological perspective, what principles frame your political stances? Uh, you know, not not the question of what political party you ought to endorse, but uh, what framework do you bring to the political discussion? Another person has a, a project in psychology, attachment theory. Uh, another person wa- really likes the material of Rene Genard, uh, Girard and memetics and wants to see how that might apply to open and relational thinking. And, and I could go on and on and on. But my point is, I would love for students to have an appreciation for the broad scope and helpfulness of this general set of ideas, and then help them pursue one narrow or particular idea that they want to go deeply when exploring. Dr. Ward, I'm really grateful for your work, your books, your email newsletter, your social media, even that Facebook group uh, for the Uncontrolling Love of God have been such a blessing to me personally. Can you tell our listeners the best way for them to engage with you and your work online? I'm really happy to hear you say that that's been uh, helpful, Jason. You know, the the best way to, I guess, get a hold of me is through email, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I'm pretty active on social media. I would encourage listeners to check out the Center for Open and Relational Theology. And you could probably just Google that or maybe you put it in the show notes. There's a lot of good resources there on our resource page, but you can also keep up to date on lots of new things happening, you know, conferences, people publishing books, articles, reviews, all that sort of thing. So I really encourage people to check out the center because what really matters most to me is that people find ideas about God that really help them 
live a life of love. And I think there are a lot of resources on the website uh, in that regard. Friends, we will absolutely link to all of Dr. Ord's resources, to the Center for Open and Relational Theology, to the God Can't Q&A book, and to uh, some other interviews that he's done recently that will dive even further into depth on this topic. And I hope you'll take advantage of those resources. I highly, highly, highly recommend getting the God Can't Q&A book. It's going to help you unpack the content of the original God Can't book even more and uh, help you assimilate that into your life. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jason. I really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. 